How's it going, everyone? Welcome to episode 95 of Fear Frequency, a weekly horror podcast. It's me, your host, Jimmy Champagne, and I'm here with George. How are you doing? Good, man. What's up? Nothing. i uh been working all day, had a lot of work to do, but I woke up early, got some Animal Crossing in. I got the bug for Animal Crossing, finally, months after it came out. <laughs> when most people have dropped off, you're finally jumping on. Does that ever happen to you, like, when a game comes out and you're just, like, not feeling it, but you know you will like it eventually? So you just hang on to it, hang on to it, and then eventually you just want to play it really bad again, and then it just clicks with you? Yeah, I've, I've definitely had that before. I think when Dishonored 1 came out, that happened with me. I played it at launch, it just did not click, then came back, and it was amazing. I've done that a lot this year with, like, Bioshock 2 is another good example that took forever for me to get the urge to play it. But then when I did, I beat it really quick and I loved it. But yeah, my Animal Crossing, I was at the point where you have to get a three-star rating on your island. And I just didn't really know how at the time. And I wasn't into it. So I just stopped playing. And then now I kind of know what you have to do. There's more stuff in the game, like more furniture, more different bugs, different fish. There's more, just more things you can do. And fall is coming up. Fall and the game starts on September 1st. So I wanted to knock that out and then be ready for fall. So that's that's where I'm at. And you're at the same spot as me. Yeah, roughly. Uh, I think I'm like a little bit behind because I don't have the clothing shop built in my town yet. But uh, just unlock the like star system. So I have to beautify my town a bit and start building stuff so I could be decent by the time fall rolls around. I, I did this thing like where I time skipped a day forward and then got a bunch of shit and then went the day back. But then it reset all of the fossils and the uh, money tree hole. But it gave me a money tree hole yesterday twice. Because when I went back, I got a new money tree hole. And then when I went, f- like when I passed time to today in real life, I got another money tree hole. So I currently have four money trees planted. Nice. And if, I think they all will be grown by tomorrow. And I did the 10K one. So I'll get 30 grand from each tree. Can't beat that. <laughs> so I'm just like waiting for that. I also had a ton of work today, which sucked, but now I'm caught up and we have a lot, we have a lot of movies to talk about today. Yeah, we definitely went kind of crazy this week with the movies. So we both realized that Hulu has an incredible, absolutely incredible selection of horror movies. Like anything from IFC Midnight is on there. A lot of the RLJ entertainment movies are on there. Well go. All of my favorite distributors essentially are on Hulu just for free. So we both just binged all of our favorite movies and we kind of picked out (laughs) the one that surprised us the most, which is Trick. And then we also have La Llorona, which is Shudder's new release, which will be out by the time you hear this podcast. And then we also watched the new IFC Midnight movie, The Rental, which is uh, directed by Dave Franco, which is why people are watching it. And so, yeah, we have a lot to talk about this week. I was, you can, you can respond. No, <laughs> I thought you were going to jump you're, into it. No, you're allowed. <laughs> it's your show too. <laughs> I'm going to leave that in. <laughs> So, George, I only have two news stories on here this week, and one of them is, like, only tangentially related to the horror genre, so that's where we're at with COVID right now. The first one is that Courtney Cox is confirmed to be coming back as Gale for Scream 5. I'm just, like, all my hype for this movie is pretty much gone at this point. It just seems like they're they're making, like, another Scream and not a good movie that has a reason to exist, if that makes sense. Is, um, I mean, was it supposed to be like a soft reboot or was it always supposed to be a sequel or did it, nobody really knows? I think it's, it was announced always as a direct sequel. 
But, like, bringing everyone back seems weird to me. I feel like you could just trim the cast a little bit. Because you know that I either... So, in the first five minutes, Gail Weathers dies or doesn't. And that kind of dictates the rest of the movie. If they show that they are willing to finally kill off a main character, that'll be interesting to me. We're five movies in, so I don't really think it's going to happen. But if a main character doesn't die within like the first five, ten minutes of the movie, like someone doesn't get Drew Barrymore essentially, then I don't know. It just feels like a cash grab. I feel like that that's the like clincher right there for me. Yeah, I mean, Scream 4 had the original cast, and that was good. So I could see them making another good entry in the franchise. But I see what you're saying, you know, trying to maybe add a little bit of diversity or, or change the formula a little bit in the fifth entry might be good for it. But, you know, if they do have already have an idea set up with that original cast that works, I, I'd be happy to see that too. The weird thing is Scream 4 was really ahead of its time with its meta aspect. So it kind of feels like the movie that should be coming out now, but if they just remake Scream 4, everyone will be upset. So they're probably looking a little too far into the future with what they want to like satirize, I guess. I don't know. Like Scream 4 just left it in a really weird spot. It's also weird that we're not getting Kevin Williamson writing. It's a new writer who's just, from everything I can tell, a lot of people are saying he's just all right. And I believe in the directors, obviously, Radio Silence, because they have VHS roots. But we could end up with like something along the lines of Pet Cemetery's remake, which is good and solid overall, but it doesn't really feel like what I was expecting when I heard that the guys who made Starry Eyes were making it, right? I feel like once you get this huge studio involved, they're the ones calling the shots essentially and not necessarily the, the directors. Right. That's that's definitely a good point where, you know, it's two really strong directors, but you know, the rest of the movie wasn't really there. And, you know, maybe if they had more say or they were able to put a little bit more of their own flavor into it, it would have wound up as something a little bit better. And I mean, if the thing about the Scream franchise is they're good because they are all so well written and interesting and like you're saying, satirize certain aspects of the horror genre and, you know, have those like meta conversations. So if the writing isn't there, then there's no way that this movie is going to be good and spyglass is also doing the hellraiser reboot which is odd to me because that does have a really good team involved with it i will say but it's a very similar situation it really all just comes down to how much control they actually give the directors because it seems like every time one of our favorite director teams or directors end up working on a franchise or a studio movie it never turns out well because pet cemetery again is solid but it's not great You've got uh, Death Note and Blair Witch, which I think Blair Witch is really good, but it's, you know, it's Adam Wingard playing in someone else's sandbox, which is not necessarily the best for what, like, the point we're trying to make. And then, um, what's another one? Ty West never really did studio stuff. No, he did that sequel. What was that? Oh, Cabin Fever 2. Yeah, that was pretty bad. Which he, like, publicly disowned. (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty bad. (laughs) (laughs) that's a great example but yeah i just feel like when these smaller directors end up directing franchise movies that aren't theirs or like playing in different sandboxes than the ones they've created it doesn't always go as well as you'd expect it to like when adam wingard was expected to be directing halloween i was originally stoked but now 
seeing someone like David Gordon Green come in, someone who's been around the block with studios, really understands how to work with them, has an established career and a legitimately good idea for Halloween. That's why I think he was the better choice in the long run than Adam Wingard, who the only real good thing I can say for him directing Halloween is that he's directed some really good horror movies that are inspired by Halloween. But I don't know what his idea for the franchise was. So I can't say whether or not his would have been better, you know? Right. And I mean, that is a big part of it. Um, Sort of in the same vein, like the spiral where, what was it? Chris Rock said that, uh, you know, he had this basically saw a movie that he had written on his own free time that he wanted to make. And uh, so clearly, you know, he had a vision, something he wanted to do within that franchise. And hopefully that movie is good. But I think that is like definitely a stronger reason to pick somebody to do a movie if they have a clear vision as opposed to just have made a good movie in the past. And that can go wrong like in the other direction too because as we're going to talk about in a little bit there's a guy I'm going to bring up named Gary J. Tunicliffe and he worked on a lot of the Hellraiser movies. He's worked on a bunch of other stuff we'll talk about later but he thought he had like incredible idea for a Hellraiser movie. He's been trying to make it forever and then he gets to make it which is Hellraiser Judgment and it's horrible. So it can go in the opposite direction, but more often than not... Yeah, de- definitely. I feel like if you're coming into a franchise with an actual idea as a fan, instead of just good horror chops, I feel like I'm much more inclined and excited to hear what you have to make than what someone else would, you know? I, I, that's just how I feel after seeing all these movies come out. Right, and especially if it's something super, you know, the story is something cookie-cutter that the movie studio's already pumped out and they're just looking for someone to be a figurehead on it then you know those movies usually end up having absolutely no flavor and just being completely bland all the way through and i'm realizing right now that my point about um pet cemetery was actually really smart because i'm 99 percent sure that was a paramount movie that they only made so they could keep the rights because stephen king has been going on like a tear to get all of the rights back to his uh movies for or his books you know to get the movies rights back for his books that's a really confusing way to say it so paramount yeah it is paramount they knew they were about to lose the rights to pet cemetery if they didn't make something so they put these like really high profile at the time creators on the guys who did starry eyes and basically made it seem like they were letting them go nuts but you can definitely tell they weren't allowed to go nuts and they had like nothing to work with paramount is the distributor making this new scream movie and something tells me that the only reason we're going to see this is because west craven's estate is getting dangerously close to the time frame in which they can just take the rights back yeah for def- the franchise you know that's definitely on the horizon there's going to be some legal battles for west craven's movies coming up any day now so like you're saying it's probably you know trying to squeeze every last dollar they can out of the scream franchise before it possibly reverts back somewhere else where they don't have it anymore yeah and you can really see why the distributors do that because if it doesn't work out they still get to keep the rights either way and they can try again like five years down the line Mm -hmm. or if it does work out and then west craven's estate still ends up taking the rights back after the 35 year mark they'll say well paramount did a really good job with the last one so we'll just stick with them they seem to know what they're doing with the franchise we'll just leave it because they don't want to rock the boat right so it's kind of a win-win if you nail it or if you don't and obviously it's not you can't work any of this down to a perfect science it's just like i'm trying to leave the read the tea leaves here (laughs) as they're presented to me 
and that's just how i see it so i'm just like i'm excited that we're getting more scream but i'm not specifically excited for the scream movie we seem to be getting did you see the i saw a joke on twitter the other day about the title treatment for scream 5 where the yeah. <laughs> the s five, replaces, five cream yeah, five cream <laughs> I just I hope that's not the direction they go with the poster. No, there's no way you can't do that. It's terrible because <laughs> everyone's gonna call it like fan four stick. Everyone's gonna call it five cream. Five cream, <laughs> which might be good for Nick. Honestly, if it's a meme before it comes out, it might already win. Yeah, the meme potential there is incredible. It's like the fifth cream. <laughs> that's awesome. So our second news story here. Disney Plus is launching Mulan, which they've just been like punting around the release schedule. A movie they made for China, which they can release in China, has been being punted around the release slate for months now. Uh, it's going to be 30 bucks on top of your Disney Plus subscription. And it's the PlayStation Plus model, not the Games with Gold model. So you can only access your $30 movie if you're paying for a subscription to Disney Plus. Uh, the reason we're bringing it up is I think it kind of sets a bad precedent because if Disney does something, then everyone else feels like, whew, now we can just do what they're doing and we won't get in trouble for it. And like you're saying, it is sort of dangerous because especially with uh, like that news story we were talking about last week, the week before where, you know, AMC was saying that, you know, there was some discussion where VOD movies could come out like 17 days or something after they hit the theaters. And so that would open up almost a whole new can of worms where let's say, you know, the rights are now on VOD, but Netflix owns the rights to Blumhouse movies for 30 days or something directly after they hit the theaters. And so now you have to have all these different streaming services for all these movies that you're seeing in theaters because you have to have the subscription to Netflix or whatever to watch them. So it's just, it gets really muddy really quick when you think of these streaming services having exclusive rights to these movies and being able to charge you a premium on top of it. That does not really seem good for the consumer. There's a lot of arguments people are making for this $30 to watch it at home thing. And I feel like all of them don't really hold water. So the first one is that I saw people are saying it costs $30 to go to the movie theater anyway, you know, between ticket prices and parking and gas and snacks. And it's like, yeah, I guess that's true, but you're leaving out the part where you get to see it on a massive screen with incredible sound. And if you're going to a good theater, they're policing it so no one's on their phone and there's zero distractions. You cannot tell me that your 50-inch TCL TV, as much as I love TCL TVs, <laughs> that you got on Black Friday for $300 along with your $75 Samsung soundbar is anywhere close to the experience you're getting at the movie theater. 4K streaming is fucking terrible like has banding it's very rarely ever 4k it's usually checkerboarded up from like 2k and if you're on wi-fi there's a pretty good chance that your tv is not even streaming in 4k even if you pay for it you have to have like over 50 megabyte a second download for the tv to even register that you can play in 4k you know it's just it's not it's not it's not the same as going to the movie theater it is very different i mean i've seen the argument like you were saying a lot and it is weird to me that it seems like the majority of people who I see talking about this on Twitter really don't see the value of going to the theater and seeing it in that setting, you know, where you're watching it on a massive screen with a great sound, better than you would experience in your home by magnitudes. And a lot of people just prefer the comfort of their home so much so that they completely ignore the benefits that you get by going to the theater. I also 
think the argument that people are making where they say like, oh, my family of four, every time I go to the movie theater, it's going to cost me like $50 a person, blah, blah, blah. It's like, that's a terrible argument as well, because I go to a lot of Marvel movies. I also go to a lot of Disney movies, which are kids movies. They're, they're in the same realm as something like Mulan, which is what Disney's putting out. I never, ever see families there opening night. I don't think I've ever once seen a kid or a family in a Marvel movie opening night. You know when they go, when on Saturday morning I go meet my girlfriend at the mall to get lunch, if there's a movie theater there, that's when the families are there. Because they can go and they can pay $5 a person, if that, to go see the latest movie. And the movie theaters love that. That's why they have that $5 screening. So you don't have screaming kids on opening night that ruin the experience for other people who then turn around and demand a refund. So it's like your argument of your mythical family it mean is meaningless to me. Like I don't give a fuck, honestly. It's like you're an anomaly. And yeah, it might be better for you to pay $30 at home to watch a movie. But also, I don't feel like the family is like that interested in seeing Mulan day one, especially knowing it will be free on Disney Plus eventually. I, I think the argument of, you know, I'm, I'm it's easier for me to pay the 30 bucks because kids don't care. You know, they'll watch a movie in 480p and they don't see the difference between that and going to the movie theater. So, like, obviously for the kids, it makes no difference. But... I mean, to say that it's like, save, like, I guess it would save you money because you don't have to go to the theater twice, I guess, to make up for the $30 cost and the kids can watch it all day because children watch movies on repeat. So there is some value to that. But I mean, outside of that scenario, it just seems like a bad value proposition. Right. And I'm not one of these people who is like, oh, I wish there were no Marvel movies anymore. I mean, I kind of wish that, but mainly because of the people who see them, not because of what they are, because I really enjoy them. I really like Star Wars movies, obviously. Like, that's my favorite thing in the whole world. And I'm not dying for these movies to go away. But you know what will be the quickest way to kill off blockbuster movies? Even stuff like Tenet or whatever Quentin Tarantino wants to make next. It's by bringing them into the home instead of having a movie theater. Because... If the if Disney is like, well, we didn't make as much money on Mulan as we would have in theaters, but theaters aren't opening up anytime soon, they're not going to greenlight any movies of that magnitude anymore. Because right. they can't make the same amount of money on Disney Plus with just subscriptions. That's why you're seeing shit like Artemis Fowl on Disney Plus, because it would have tanked in theaters anyway. And they're like, oh, we can offer this up as like a consolation on Disney Plus. And like you were saying, the people like the, you know, love them or hate them like the big visionaries in the in the industry right now like the quentin tarantinos uh just would be less interested in making a project in that kind of scenario like they would just either never make another movie or you know it, it just would be way less feasible for them to actually make another project or consider taking anything on if they're not going to get that full theatrical experience that they're looking for right which I don't, I don't understand that. A movie's a movie, a TV show's a TV show, right? Yeah. I feel like Host should be eligible for an Oscar. It's better than most of the theatrical movies I saw this year. Not that I've seen that many, but, you know, it's better than Underwater. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely. I think I enjoyed it more than uh, <laughs> The Invisible Man. Yeah, I, I would put but, it. Like, yeah, like you are saying, that's probably, like, one of my favorite movies this year. I'd have to go through the whole list of what I've seen so far, but it definitely is in the upper echelon, top three for sure. Yeah, and, like, a lot of people... At, make it seem like going to the theater is this awful experience where people are screaming. They're always on their phones. And like, yeah, if you go to AMC, there is the risk of that happening. I'm not going to pretend it doesn't happen, but AMC also has the AMC a list pass, which is $20 a month for three movies a week. 
And then you want me to turn around and pay $30 to own Mulan on your shitty like streaming service? That's a terrible value. It, just strictly monetarily speaking. It's crazy that people are trying to defend that. I'd be honestly fine if AMC went away because in both of the places that I am most of the time, Los Angeles and Detroit, there are great alternatives. Like I have Arclight out here I can go to whenever I want. I also have Alamo Drafthouse, which are both great alternatives to AMC. And then in Michigan, you have Imagine and MJR. MJR is like somewhere in between AMC and Imagine, but it's still decent right? Yeah. I mean, that's typically the theater I used to normally go to was an MJR and never, never really had huge issues with it. Um, you know, you go to the occasional Marvel movie opening night and everyone's super rowdy for it, but for the most part, it's fine. Right. And if you're at a Marvel movie on opening night, you want to cheer along with the movie, right? <laughs> like It's just part of the experience. Right. And I feel like if you're one of those people who had a bad experience or would consider that a bad experience, that $5 Saturday morning showing is there for you. Or just wait a couple weeks to see the movie, you know? But I, I just, I, I think it's super disingenuous that every argument revolves around not acknowledging how much worse your home experience is guaranteed to be, audio and visually speaking, than a movie theater screen. It's just crazy to me that no one talks about that. And also, no one brings up piracy at all because they know it's like the last little stick <laughs> holding up their argument. Mulan is going to be the most pirated movie of all time. Yes, definitely. You brought up that people are willing to show their kids a 40p stream. I know a lot of people who will show their kids the the torrents of the movies that are filmed on an iPhone 5s because kids don't care, like you said. <laughs> and now they get a, a perfect version. They're gonna show them that. It's just completely inevitable. I mean, you look at any TV show that's on a premium service. You know, whatever the big HBO show of the year is, that's the number one pirated tv you know piece of media for the year it's just bound to happen if you put something on a streaming service people will steal it and that's probably the biggest deterrent for these movie companies why they don't want to release these huge movies because 10 people will buy it i mean that's obviously an exaggeration and then a million people watch for free also people are saying uh, i'm gonna invite my friends over and we'll all pay five dollars like i'm not like if, I, if you can afford a 30 dollar movie you probably shouldn't <laughs> You got bigger problems having a party. Yeah. Like I'm not going to be like, okay, now everyone Venmo me two seventy five because there's 13 of us here. It's like, nah, I'll just pay it, pay for it guys. Just bring, bring a six pack of beer with you or something like that. You know, it's like, if you have to jump through all these hoops to make it a good value. It's a bad value. Yeah. It's, it's just weird to me that like, it seems like very few people understand or acknowledge the value of seeing it in a theater as opposed to your house we have a lot of movies to talk about so we're going to move on from that topic but if you have anything to say about it hit us up at fearfrequencypodcast at gmail.com and we'll talk about your response on the show next week first movie i have on the list here is la llorona which is shutter's new original they're putting out a new original every thursday which we caught on to halfway through the summer because we're really <laughs> smart and basically this movie is taking the la llorona legend which was done in the most mediocre way possible last year with the curse of la llorona it's basically that this woman her husband leaves and then she has a boyfriend and they have two kids and then the husband comes back and to protect her image she kills the kids but then she's sad so she kills herself and then god's like yo you gotta like walk around crying looking for your dead kids now because you've screwed up and it's applying that to 
a real life event. And I'm just going to say it out out of the gate, George. You got to do your homework if you're going to watch this movie. The screener that we got, thank you again for the screener, uh, did have a like a document that came along with it that had some background information on it that if you do read up on the like Guatemalan civil war and the civil unrest in that country, it makes the movie hit a lot harder. So it is something that if you do a little bit of the background research, it's a much more interesting movie. You know, if you're not someone that's up on those current events or understands the recent history of Guatemala, I don't know if uh, you'll really get what's going on outside of the context of the movie. But like you were saying, if you do a little bit of homework, do a little bit of reading, um, the movie does you know, is a lot deeper of a story. Yeah, and I paraphrased it to the most important details here that really stood out to me. So Guatemala, it's got the third highest femicide rate in the world, and the government is really corrupt, like all the way to the top. And if you want to understand why people get upset when, like if someone's coming up to America from Guatemala, for example, and then people say, we're working with their government to bring them back home and not letting them into the country. Well, it's like, what do you think their government's doing if it's one of the most corrupt governments <laughs> in the world? It's not like they're reaching the hand out and just taking them back home. And obviously, it's a complicated issue, so you can't boil it down to something that simple. But it makes you like kind of realize, like, oh, not everywhere else in the world has a government that works at all. <laughs> really because yeah. it, it doesn't look like the guatemalan government works that well i don't think that's too egregious of a statement so in this movie la llorona is representing the natives of guatemala who are all mayans and during the guatemalan civil war they were the like rebels going up against this corrupt government and the ruling class is basically the small portion of the population that's descended from spanish explorers and the main character sort of of this movie is a guy named enrique and he represents that working class or that ruling class because he was a general who led a genocide during the Guatemalan Civil War. And just for some context here, the Guatemalan army or like the group of people who were representing the country of Guatemala in the Civil War were around 500,000 people. And the rebels were never more than 6,000 people and they still put up a fight. So that's kind of crazy when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, against all odds with you know, obviously much greater numbers on the um, oppressor side as well as, you know, better weaponry and financial support. So really an uphill battle the entire time. So La Llorona is actually a woman in this named Alma who Enrique murdered along with her two kids. And he told her, if you cry, I kill you. And then she cried, obviously. And then so he killed her in a river and her kids drowned, I guess, of gun from the gunshot wounds. I don't know. I, I think they sh he shot shot the kids in the head. Like, th they're playing it fast and loose with the La Llorona legend here. They're just, like, kind of taking, like, oh, scored woman, two kids. She's mad. Like, that's kind of what they boiled it down to. So, yeah, it's kind of a adaptation, loose adaptation of the folklore with current events going on in the country. After Enrique is acquitted of his genocidal crimes because of a mistrial. Alma, who's La Llorona, she's a ghost of La Llorona, she shows up at the house because all the housemaids quit, and then she's like, I'm the new housemaid, and then she makes some crazy shit happen, which we won't spoil, but one thing she does is she makes uh, Enrique's wife, who like staunchly defends the kind of person he is, 
La Llorona makes this woman live through what she went through every night in Nightmares, which I thought was pretty effective, even though neither of us really understood that's what was happening when it happened, but then we looked it up after and we were like, oh. Right. Once we kind of talked about it with each other prior to the show, it sort of made sense and, you know, compared compared notes basically on what we thought was going on, it, it sort of made sense, but in the context of the movie, it was a little bit confusing. I thought the movie was really well done. It is a little slow, despite the fact that it's 90 minutes. The cinematography is the best thing about this movie. It's, like, absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah. It's, like, the the, the trial, the just the way that all the, the they have the angle of the camera, and it's just black all around all of these, like, hundreds of people. They're the only thing that's lit. I don't know how they did this. And they're all, all of their heads are pointed at Enrique from behind. And it's, like the whole country watching him you know it's really cool imagery like that and it's metaphorical imagery but it's really easy to know what the metaphor is but it's shot so well that you don't feel like it's beating you over the head and even some of the non you know kind of metaphorical just the like establishing shots um a lot of the nighttime around the house or around the pool with the fog kind of rolling in over uh, over everything is just you know really well shot eye candy that you know really puts you kind of in in the movie while you're watching it yeah it's definitely more of a drama than a horror movie i would say do you agree with that yes definitely i would say it really doesn't um delve too deeply into the horror in the traditional sense aspect until like the last 10 or 15 minutes or so right it's like scary stuff is happening obviously like these flashbacks where you're seeing people get shot in the river mercilessly that's pretty scary because it's a thing that really happened right and putting yourself in those in that situation you're like well that would suck suck ass and then (laughs) there's another scene yeah when enrique after his trial uh he's being taken in an ambulance to the hospital because i guess his heart he has like a heart issue or some shit and you can hear all of these there's no windows on the ambulance and you can hear all of these like hands beating on the outside of the ambulance that was really claustrophobic scary moment i felt um, did you did you have any scary moments really just kind of the like extra weirdness of some of the some of the scenes in the movie um one of the common issues that enrique has is the these like sleepwalking episodes where he starts to sleepwalk around the house at night and some of those definitely have you know some good tension to them um there's one scene where he's kind of walking into elma's room and there's like th- you know six inches of water on the floor it's just like everything's kind of off and very dreamlike and surreal that was interesting i I wouldn't really call it scary but definitely you know off-putting in a sense just thinking about the fact that a lot of the scariest stuff in this is stuff that really happened i think makes it a really sobering watch it's just it's a weird fit for shutter i think because it's just like it's not really a horror movie and it's not something that people are going to be climbing over each other to watch i don't think it's also as applicable to american society as something like parasite is even though parasite was made as a like juxtaposition against south korean society you can definitely kind of see some parallels to american society if you really want to look into it i feel like that's harder to do here because a lot of a, a lot of what's going on in it is directly speaking about one very specific thing instead of just trying to be general about it you know like it is a little bit it's a little obtuse just because if you're not familiar with the historical events then it doesn't hit as hard basically so um if the and i i kind of agree with what you're saying where 
you know, it is like it's definitely more serious in nature and the subject matter that it tackles and um, less horror, more drama. So it's a bit of a weird fit. I mean, I'm glad it's getting wide distribution and people can see it if they're interested in this. But um, I, I just think that you kind of have to do some homework before you watch it to really get the full effect. Yeah, I think we gave you the gist of it here, but just kind of skim the Guatemalan Civil War if you really want to ruin your own day. <laughs> and uh, look up what the director's intent was because they also gave us this PowerPoint that I think is publicly available that just kind of like tells you what everyone was thinking going into this. And then it kind of gives you the context of what's going on. But I will say... I kind of got to knock it for not, you know, I, I needed that extra reading to really understand what was going on. And I feel like that's a shortcoming of the movie. And like, I, I think it is really the movie's job to kind of convey some of this stuff better. So I would give it like a three star that if it was just a little bit more accessible, it would get a four star out of five for me. Yeah, I, I would say that's a pretty fair rating. But I do recommend checking it out. And now the next one, I've been so excited to talk about it all week. <laughs> You've been waiting. We got Trick. Have you heard of this, George, before I mentioned it to you? No, this was a... Uh... Yes, you have. We talked about it on the show. <laughs> did, that was no, a trick question. When did we talk about yes, it? Yes, we show? did. When uh, Omar Epps was cast in it. <laughs> we did. We talked about it. Did we? It. I don't remember. I have a bad memory. <laughs> and it was, also, it was also when you were writing the doc. <laughs> I have a really bad memory. I know. I just wanted to fuck with you. So, <laughs> this movie came out last October. October 18th, 2019. George and I skipped it for a combination of reasons, which include Haunt came out. That was really good, and we were talking about that all the time. A ton of bad reviews came out for this movie, and we were in Salem when it came out, so we just like kind of let it pass us by. And then after Halloween, you don't really have much of a reason to watch it anymore, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of reasons, though, why I think this movie is worth exploring. And it basically comes down to the team that made it being an early 2000s dream team. And I don't know why this wasn't a focus in any of the marketing. So Patrick Lussier directed it. It might be Lussier. I don't know how to say that. Uh, Todd Farmer wrote it. Gary J. Tunicliffe, who I mentioned earlier, he did the effects. And Omar Epps was starring in it. And Tom Atkins was going to be more than just a small cameo. So that's like basically the important tidbits you need. So Patrick Lussier, he's done a ton of stuff. He's directed uh, My Bloody Valentine 3D, early 2000s classic. Drive Angry, another early 2000s classic. He did some episodes of Scream and the Purge TV shows. He also, he got his start as a prolific editor. He edited H2O, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, Scream 1, 2, and 3, Red Eye, and a bunch of other movies. Todd Farmer wrote Jason X, My Bloody Valentine, and Drive Angry. And remember, he wrote this movie. Gary J. Tudicliffe did the effects on The Collection, basically every Hellraiser movie, Halloween 6, and a ton of others. So he's a good effects person who worked on bad movies because his work kind of made all those movies enjoyable to some degree. So from that standpoint, George, do you see why I'm so excited to talk about this now? Yeah. Um, I mean, really, at surface level, the only people that I recognized in the movie were Tom Atkins and Omar Epps. Uh, did not know that there was this ensemble cast of people behind the scenes that were putting this together. Yeah, you're coming in with the high-level opinions, and I'm, like, trying to justify a bad movie <laughs> with the people who made it, which is my favorite thing to do. This movie is definitely not even close to a one-star movie, which is what most of the people I follow on Letterboxd gave it. It's basically a mix between a buddy cop movie and a slasher, and it really is basically a 50-50 split between those 
And it follows a bad guy named Trick. He's a high school student. He's got a two-sided knife that says Trick on one side and Treat on the other. He's got a pumpkin mask that has faces that visualize those words. So, like, one is happy and one is kind of, like, mischievous. Upset. Like, like, a little it, bit, like, yeah, <laughs> a little bit evil. Not angry. Not, not quite yeah. angry, but, like, you sense darkness. And so, on a Halloween party, he's getting bullied and he, get, he stabs a lot of the kids to various degrees none of them die for some reason and then he gets to go to the hospital um where mike denver the detective played by omar epps tries to take off his face paint and then he goes into a blind rage and jumps out of the third story of this hospital (laughs) and then climbs into a river now george that is the first halloween reference i noticed it's from halloween 4 where Michael Myers... No, it's a Halloween 5 reference as well, where after the end of Halloween 4, Michael Myers, after being shot a bunch of times, crawls into a river and slips away. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, the before we go any further, I think one of the weird, super weird things about this movie is it's essentially structured like a sequel to a movie. That opening scene is like the climax to Trick 1. Then he gets out of the hospital, and they're like, well... Trick definitely has to be dead because he was in the river. Cue Trick 2, which is the remainder of this movie. Like, I think setting it up as if it were a sequel and that first 10 minutes is the first movie is bizarre to me. Trick falls short mainly due to its massive ambition. It is way too ambitious for its own good. It takes place over the span of like five years indiscriminately in the same place which is not the smartest thing to do because everything looks the same. But they need they have a story that spans multiple nights, but they want to make sure it always takes place on or around Halloween. So, of course, they split it up over this time span of years. You're so right that it feels like a sequel. And the, the first movie is the one I really want to see because the intro for Trick, unbelievably good. It is insanely good. That's another really weird thing about this movie is it whips so wildly between quality like the opening scene is basically halloween 4 level god tier sets up the halloween spirit perfectly you got the kids trick-or-treating you got the uh, midwestern neighborhood you have all the houses with their with their halloween decorations out it looks perfect it's like perfect scene setting for a slasher movie but it's just so wildly inconsistent. There'll be incredibly high highs with scenes like that and then really insanely low lows and really weird story beats. You can tell that everyone making it was really into it because it does start out with the definition of the word trick, which is pretty cool. I like that. And then it goes into this Halloween night intro leading up to the party where you've got kids running around the street in costumes that are like handmade. You've got houses with beautiful halloween decorations it takes place in upstate new york and they take advantage of that throughout the entire movie but the intro is where it really shines because it's not shot during the winter yeah it's shot on like a halloween night with like leaves rustling it's unbelievably good it's it's it matches up with something like haunt or halloween 4 like you mentioned yeah which is odd (laughs) that they would give so many call outs to halloween 5 because the one i mentioned earlier is one of two that i noticed uh, the other one is the high school dance, which uses a high school that looks almost identical to the dance in Halloween 5. And knowing the setup for this movie, like, I feel like that was intentional. I understand if people have, you know, certain affinity for horror movies that aren't necessarily the best in the world. But I've never seen the, like, Halloween 5 gathering. You know, I've never really seen anybody who 
sings the praises of Halloween Five. So I don't know why that would be like the, you're part of this small you know minority that would be singing the praises and want to emulate that movie out of all the movies they could have picked. Especially when the effects guy worked on Halloween Six, and then another person wrote uh or no edited h20 h2o don't get mad at me guys um <laughs> well why why are you calling it halloween five maybe it wasn't intentional i just kind of refused to believe that but moving back onto the plot here moving along every year trick comes back and murders different cops and high school students who wronged him in some way that fateful night i think it's in like 2013 i don't this movie uses a lot of different years and none of them are really chronological. It like <laughs> skips from 13 to 15 to 17 for some reason. It's odd. It's an odd odd choice. That's all I'm saying. There are some incredible kills. The kills stand in a league of their own. And I feel like that's where you're getting the Gary Jake tuna cliff touch here. There's one kill that I loved where Trick is sitting on a crane. <laughs> and at the end of a very long cord, there's a full-on like headstone. And he winds up the crane and then swings it back the other way perfectly so that it flies through the windshield of a cop car and completely removes someone's head into a pool of blood. Yeah. And the angle is from behind. The camera angle is in the back seat with the squib exploding and all the blood all over the place. That scene is really awesome. That is a really extremely noteworthy kill. God tier. Also, there's a saw trap that happens right before that with the person who has their head explode where they trip a trip wire and a boat anchor, anchor swings around and goes <laughs> into their stomach and they're able to walk, which is insane to me. Uh, that's a really cool um, trap that they have set up. And then there's another kill where the, um, it's hard to explain this over a podcast, but a guy is sitting in a chair and he's got a cord tied around his neck and then the cord goes up and over a pulley and on the other end of the cord is a bunch of cinder blocks so detective mike denver runs outside sees all this going on he's like holy shit and so he's trying to hold up the cinder blocks and there's another woman there who gives the most authentic fuck i've ever heard in a movie (laughs) and she puts her fingers underneath the cord and then while omar epps aka mike denver is trying to hold up these cinder blocks trick appears out of nowhere does his little like laugh twists the trick-or-treat knife, lands on Trick, jumps onto the cinder blocks, <laughs> and not only does it behead the police guy in the chair, it rips, it cut, slices off all the fingers of the fuck lady. And it's it's just God level. It's really well done. It's really well done. I guess I like making fun of it, but I, I was just blown away. I thought it was just awesome effects all around. Yeah. And I mean, like I was saying, that's kind of the issue with the movie is there are these really high highs where there's cool kills like that. There's great scenery, you know, really good like cinematography setting up the area, the um, kind of outdoor um, haunt area that's in the backyard of the school that Tom Atkins is running where Trick is dressed up as one of the people in the um, like school haunt thing. That whole scene is awesome you know, feels really, like, authentic and cool, kind of like a Halloween Horror Night-style walk-through outdoor haunted house that just looks really cool and has, like, some interesting interactions between Trick and the people who are not in costume. And so scenes like that are really high, and it's like, you know, maybe this movie isn't so bad. And then there's other parts that are just, uh, like, almost unwatchable. Full disclosure, I watched this movie twice in a week, 
which and I had a great time both times. It felt a lot longer the first time, but once I knew what was going on and I had parts to be excited for, I it just went a lot quicker. It flowed a lot better. I do think it could lose about 30 minutes because it's almost two hours long and it really has no right to be. Like just even the plot it's trying to tell does not warrant a two hour movie in any way. But it is kind of like that movie we've been begging for ever since Man of Medan came out. We saw that intro and it made us all nostalgic for when we were (laughs) growing up. It is kind of like that. It is definitely like that. Yeah. Where it's like a modern recreation of like an early 2000s horror movie. Yeah. I would say between that and the completely unnecessary twist that they put in that's kind of the last like 20 minutes of the movie, like you're saying, could completely be removed and the movie would be a lot stronger for it. Like, it just really overcomplicates itself at the very end for no reason at all. I think it's a good movie. I think it's it's borderline good. It's I wouldn't call it bad. I wouldn't call it mediocre either because it really is enjoyable to watch. It's fun. It has that sense of fun and charm that I really look for in horror movies. It was enjoyable for me to sit down and watch this movie, laugh along with some of the parts. I kind of laughed at it sometimes. I'm not going to lie. But most of the time I was laughing with it. I was enjoying the absurdity of the kills. And just most importantly, like we mentioned, the fall atmosphere is completely on point. They nailed the feel of Halloween. And when it kind of steps into November and you're seeing the snow on the ground, that early winter, it totally nails that too. So in the aspects I'm looking for in a movie called Trick about a guy who wears a fucking pumpkin mask... And has a knife that says trick or treat on it. That's what I'm looking for. I'm De- looking for, you got to back that up with some fucking strong Halloween fall vibes. And that's what this movie does. It definitely does that. It achieves that without question. So at this point, we kind of have to talk about the twist, George, which means we're going to spoil the shit out of this movie. Not that I feel like anyone's going to watch it who's listening to this, but <laughs> do you have anything before we get into the spoiler section that you want to talk about? So I don't want to put it up on the high, high pedestal that we place Satan's Little Helper on as like one of the all-time Halloween greats H- has to be in the Halloween rotation. But I would say this is a totally fun movie that I will watch in October this year without question. I think it has earned a spot in the October rotation without question. Yeah, no, without question for me too. And you know what? I gave it a two out of five the first time I saw it, but... The second time I watched it, I bumped it up to two and a half. And honestly, after talking about it, I might have to give it the generous three. I, I like think very generous. Three. I think it's the strongest two and a half I've ever given in my whole life. It's like the hi- highest, highest end 2.5 I've ever given a movie. You give it the 0.5 because it swings wildly from five stars to two. <laughs> exactly. So I can't give it the full five. So I have to cut the rating directly in half. So now we're going to talk about the twist. Again, this is a spoiler, but... Also, it's a really dumb twist that's not going to like make or break the movie for you, I promise. Basically, it's revealed that Trick is more of a disciple for a bunch of other Tricks who all dress up just like him. Because he's in a wheelchair after being shot multiple times and falling out of <laughs> yes. the third story of a hospital. One of the more believable elements of this movie, I will say. But they didn't have to do that because they introduced multiple times that these trick disciples all have supernatural abilities of not dying. <laughs> so you could have just had one trick and I would have believed you. Right. I mean like 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 we talked about like like we were talking about earlier with the obvious Halloween references. If they wanted to make trick like a supernatural Michael Myers style entity that's just unkillable who that's very clearly the like idea they're going for with 
Omar Epps being the like Loomis to trick the Michael Myers. And it, it would have worked like that if they just left that dynamic of like the unkillable force with the good cop that's trying to put him down forever. Like that would have totally been completely serviceable and I would have had no issues with that. But the fact that they have to make it this way overcomplicated trick somehow convinces like police officers, people who worked at the school, like people who went to the party with them is that like the amount of people that are disciples of trick is un- unreal. Yeah, that's the only unreal thing in the whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's just odd. It's very odd. The end of the movie is also very odd. It feels like it ends and then it goes on for like 15 more minutes, which I wasn't a fan of as someone who's kind of like championing short movies now. But for every every bad George, there's at least some goods. I can't really quantify how many, but <laughs> I, I really cannot implore people enough. If you want to get into the Halloween spirit, Trick is your new movie to watch. I 100% agree that this movie gets far more shit than it deserves. I think this movie is far from a one star. I've seen my fair share of one star movies, and I'd say this is far from it. People reviewed The Curse of La Llorona and The Nun positively. That's a one-star fucking movie. Yeah, both of those are terrible. Both of those. Like, those are offensively bad movies. And people like The Strangers Pray at Night, which, again, to me, (laughs) is an offensively bad movie. Which, for some reason, is a hot take. That is, certain people do defend that movie tooth and nail. Uh, Here, I'm going to make a 2020 challenge for everyone out there who likes that movie. (laughs) Defend it without bringing up the pool scene challenge (laughs) from me. There you go. If your only defense of a movie is a five-minute moment out of a 90-minute runtime, it's not good. I'm sorry. Because I would say out of the hour and 47 minutes of Trick, about an hour and 10 minutes of it is great. And then, like, 20 minutes is good. And then the leftover is horrible. (laughs) I would say that's a pretty fair breakdown. Right? That's fair, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I love trick. I'm buying it on Blu-ray. <laughs> I'm really trying hard to not sound like I'm being ironic with my fandom of trick. I'm really not. I actually enjoy this movie and I will watch it more than the two times I already have. I don't know what that says about my taste in movies, but as far as a horror movie goes, that's going to get you in the Halloween spirit again. You really can't go wrong with trick double feature. You with can't. Exactly. You can't get much better than that. Yeah. You forgot you watched The Clovich Killer, which we did an episode on. I looked at the show notes. We never did an episode on The Clovich Killer, just so you know. I'm not that insane. I know. I know we did. We I know did we not. talked about it. 100% did not. I searched all the show notes, and there's no mention of The Clovich Killer. I know. We had to have. <laughs> we had to have. We did not. I'm looking this up. Dang it. There's, not, there's nothing coming up in the docs. That's what I'm saying. We never did it for the show. I'm not that insane. Oh, that's so weird. So I'm the insane one. I was positive we had seen, done this episode on that. Because it's got that guy in it. Yeah, the dad. The BTK. Something, something's happening above me. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> um, check it out on Hulu, please. And get back to us on Twitter at Jimmy Champagne and at George Frizzard and at Fear Frequency. Just pick one of those. Let us know what you think. And let us know if we're crazy for liking it. The last movie we have to talk about... Uh, I would say we saved the best for last, but we definitely didn't. It's called The Rental. It's an IFC Midnight one, which is why we wanted to talk about it. It's from our friends over there. 
It's also directed by Dave Franco and it's written by Joe Swanberg. That's about the point where I start caring that it's written by Joe Swanberg. We brought him up a million times. VHS, The Sacrament, Cabin Fever 2 as a hazmat guy. He's a great actor, great writer. And it basically follows a group of two couples who go to an Airbnb for the weekend and then a bunch of weird shit happens. What did you think of The Rental? It's a it's a weird movie. It's a mixed bag. It's mostly a drama, kind of like La Llorona, where the first 90% of the movie is essentially just a drama between these two couples and their lives. I think the it's really well shot. I think like the the cabin looks cool. The, you know, very foggy exterior was like a very cool mood setting for me. I, you know, kind of got into it and the world was well established. Um, Dan Stevens kind of carries the movie on his back because he's the only one who's really like chewing the scenery and being an active member of the, the only one I really cared about, I, I would say. Um, I think there's a lot of shit about the ending that I don't really understand the hate for because to me, the ending was kind of the big redeeming moment for me. So I don't really want to spoil that yet. So what did you think? I thought that the characters were really well fleshed out. And I thought the drama interworking in between them was great. I feel like you're right. It serves much better as a drama and not really a horror movie. It could have been like a comedy of, of some sort. But my favorite part of the movie is the ending when the killer starts to reveal himself and you see his mask. And just the kills themselves are really cool. They're really brutal. One of them is with a hammer to the head that is just got this really upsetting sound to it i thought that was great also the cast is completely stacked you've got dan stevens as charlie his wife michelle's played by allison brie then you've got his older brother who's jeremy allen white i've never heard of him before his girlfriend uh mia mina is played by sheila van who i've definitely seen and then toby huss who famously had a line about getting peanut butter on his penis in halloween 2018 (laughs) plays taylor so you've got You've got like a stacked cast that has really good chemistry. You've got some good drama between them because Charlie, again, played by Dan Stevens, works with Mina and they're one of those like two close work couples, but Charlie's brother is dating Mina and Charlie has a wife, Michelle, who's played by Alison Brie. So there's some weird stuff going on all in between them. The whole reason they even go on the trip is because they landed some big work deal and they're going to have to be around each other a lot more. So... I don't want to act like all that stuff is bad because it's well-written and interesting. It's just, it takes up way too much of the movie's runtime. Yeah. I mean, I think like what it boils down to is that it, it they're well-written. They're, you know, good interactions between the characters, but I think it just kind of boils down to, you, you know, it doesn't really amount to anything by the time the movie's over. It's like, well, why do we need to know that much if it doesn't really matter in the end? Like it just feels kind of like empty you know, like we got to peek in these, I guess that's kind of part of it. Like we get to see these people's lives for X amount of time and then, you know, the door shuts. But, um, you know, by the time that the, the credits roll, it just sort of feels like pointless in a way. I was also, spoilers, guys, spoilers, 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 spoilers. Okay, I'm spoiling the movie. I was also waiting for Mina to come back and be a final girl after she seemingly ran off the cliff. I didn't really expect that. It's like, to me, what I liked about the ending was the, so, I mean, this, this sort of contradicts because, you know, it like sets, they set a bunch of red herrings throughout the movie as to who the killer could be, um, you know, what's going on in the house. 
you know, who, who could it be? And then it just ends up being, like, some unknown person that's killing them. And so I thought, like, from kind of, like, a realist standpoint, that kind of makes sense that, you know, the guy would just kill her and then go off and do it again to the next Airbnb house that he chose. So I didn't really expect, you know, Mina to, like, come back or, or do anything, especially since, you know, we've, we've already saw them throw a person off a cliff earlier in the movie. Um... But to me, like, the, the thing that was cool was the unknown killer that, you know, we get to kind of see his um, methods to his madness where, you know, he picks out the next Airbnb and copies the key and sees the inner workings of the house and, you know, kills again. I thought that was, like, kind of the cool part and what makes it sort of the modern-day Airbnb urban legend style. I almost wish that they started the movie with that and just let you know from the beginning that all these people are going to die and then you get to see every event that leads up to it and see how the killer kind of makes them think that toby huss's character is the one that's actually going to kill them and then out of nowhere boom you get this like crazy tactical murderer who manages to kill them all right like i don't feel like the twist is so sacred in this movie that you can't spoil it yeah because you know someone's watching them the whole movie anyway because once they get there you get the pov shot from the killer's perspective of him breathing like michael myers which is another odd call out to halloween since virtually none of this movie even is in the same realm as halloween (laughs) no not at all there's so many critics who love this movie and it kind of feels like not not to i love this movie so it's it's a weird thing to bring up but the last jedi where there is like a huge group of people who love it only for the fact that it's a very different star wars movie like they're like yeah it shits on this thing that you love and re and introduces it to me someone who doesn't like star wars or know anything about it i like this one movie this movie feels like that to slasher movies where it's like but what if you cared about the characters i can see that and you did make a good point about that would have i didn't really think about that but that would have been interesting to you know we get the opening you know you just cut that last bit out you restructure at the beginning so we know that there is something you know un unnatural going on from the beginning i mean you sort of get that vibe throughout the movie but if we as the audience knew that there was something extra to it while they were in the you know rental house i feel like that might have added a little bit of extra tension to it like you know we'd be waiting as the audience for like well when's he gonna come out is he gonna smash through the window while they're you know having their drug trip and dancing on the first night or you know might have been a little bit more you know ramping up the tension from the very beginning as opposed to kind of backloading it right i feel like this movie also there's a much more ambitious version of it that's told from the killer's perspective because we know that the killer sets up cameras, he sets up microphones, he uses those against the people who are staying in the houses. There's a much more ambitious version where the killer is in his panic room, right? He's watching everything happening in this house, and we see the entire movie through the lens of the shower camera, or the one in the living room, or the one behind this bookshelf in the bedroom, or in the outlet, and that's how we see the movie, right? Like, he's switching the camera. We know Mm -hmm. he's a killer. We get that moment that we get at the end where he's setting up the keys. He's getting this apartment that he Airbnbs ready to, uh, he's staging it for a murder, right? We see that at the beginning. He goes to his panic room. And from that point forward, it's from his perspective. And then we still get all those dramatic moments, but they're told in a much more dynamic way 
that would make me more interested in them. And then you're just kind of wondering, like, when is the killer going to strike? And then you start seeing him sending them messages, like, of Mina and Charlie fucking in the shower. Stuff like that. Because that, I feel like that would have made it a much more dynamic movie and more of a slasher than a drama that ends weird. And it also kind of goes, that would kind of go back to your, you know, almost like subverting expectations where you go and expecting a slasher movie. But if it's told from this new and inventive, you know, something different style to the way that the story is told, that would have actually subverted expectations and added a lot more to the movie. Yeah, and then if the killer kills everyone, that's a cooler ending because, like, I, I, I don't know. It w- it w- I would feel, like, cheated if we saw this killer being so methodical and setting up such a complex house where he's going to murder people this airbnb we see his meticulous process that he's obviously done before right and then you get the like cliched mina not being dead when she jumps off the cliff mm-hmm. and then coming back and killing him i feel like that would be dumb yeah. i would still want the killer to end up winning but that way it would like but, earn it more and i feel like i feel like the movie i just pitched is within the realm of this movie's budget too i, I don't know it just it feels like um feels like they just kind of went halfway with everything except for the dialogue writing because the dialogue writing is really strong and the shot work is also strong yeah i mean i think overall it's a a pretty good first movie i mean i think dave franco did a decent job directing it um i'd be curious to see what he comes out with you know in the future if he ever does you know visit horror again i might check it out um so uh, overall it was okay um i think it's worth a watch if you know probably definitely if it's on like a streaming service like if it comes to hulu or netflix or something i would say it's definitely worth a watch might not be worth the vod rental price but um i would say you know give it a watch if it's on a streaming service that you have i would too i always love giving ifc midnight support too they just they know how to pick movies to distribute i really think that i also want us to get on their blu-ray blu-ray list because we end up watching all their movies anyway. So it would be nice to own a lot of them. Uh, Cause I've seen the wretched getting sent out and I'm like, shit, like I really like, I never get like that anymore. Like, like I'm like, fuck, I want that early, but that's one I want early. Definitely put on my Twitter. And that's on, uh, that's on Hulu now. The wretched's on, on Hulu. Yeah. I think IFC must have some deal with Hulu because I, I was looking through the horror movies and there's just like everything you could think of <laughs> right. from the past three years, really. So it's before, the Harvest, which is proving very hard to track down, Damn. sadly. But that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Fear Frequency. I think this was a really good episode, George. I got to say, I'm giving this one a gold star. Yeah, had a lot of fun. Gold star. We talked about three very different movies that uh, I think everyone should at least, I think they're all worth a watch for sure. Yeah. Um, La Llorona, you got to be in the right headspace. But yep, if definitely. you have Shudder, which I'm sure a lot of people got for um host for host yep can't go wrong with a brand new movie i think next week they're putting out random acts of violence which is the one starring jay baruchel and a bunch of other people we have that too we're gonna watch it and we, we have can't say uh, anything about it though. yeah can't say anything about that yet uh there's a joe bob special coming out in like a couple weeks that'll be cool so some good stuff to look forward to recommend la llorona highly recommend trick for anyone who listens to this show <laughs> assuming you're a halloween fan and then the rental, you know what kind of movie it is, and you've probably already seen it. But I give it like a hard three out of five. Yeah, I gave it a generous three and a half. 
generous that is a generous that's a that's the definition of generous <laughs> i think um but yep that's gonna do it for this episode of fear frequency i've got to edit it tonight so i'm gonna head out um follow me on twitter at jimmy champagne and follow george on twitter at george Fazard. he's a big name now he got it written up on bloody disgusting yeah i'm in the big the big horror website my name is in print yeah and you get your own screeners that are ruined by your email instead of mine there we go fresh experiences yeah so also review the show if you haven't yet because that really helps uh one person listened to my call out a couple weeks ago but they didn't review the show they just rated it which is fine but if you want it if you leave a review we'll read it so and we'll make some jokes yeah i think that about covers it yeah that's it all right bye